Good morning, it's Monday the 23rd of October and this is Govindraj Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and presently and unbelievably or perhaps believably the most polluted city in the country. Tomorrow is Dasera, a holiday. And our top stories and themes for the day. Fear and volatility hit global markets. Oil is now below $89 a barrel. Major activity in new ports and concessions signed across India's west coast. What is it adding up to? Indian IT professionals drive much discretionary spending in India. Could that change with a downturn? Crypto is still a no-go, says India's Reserve Bank Governor. Quote and bank leadership transitions from owner to a professional CEO. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. And in markets news from world over, Israel has said it will step up aerial strikes over Gaza in preparation for the next stage of its military operation, most likely a ground invasion. Food and medical supplies began crossing into Gaza from Egypt for the first time since the Israel-Hamas war erupted two weeks ago, responding to a key demand from US, Arab and European leaders as the humanitarian situation in the territory worsened, according to Bloomberg. At this point, oil is still holding below $89 a barrel. Dozens of leaders and senior officials from the Middle East, Europe and Africa converged on Cairo, looking for ways to prevent the Israel-Hamas war becoming a wider conflict. And over the weekend, stocks fell around the world while bonds climbed with gold on the continued concern that the Israel-Hamas war will escalate into a wider conflict. The S&P 500 dropped over 1%. Notching its worst week in a month, Wall Street fear gauge, the WIX, hit the highest since March. Treasury yields have softened somewhat after the yield on 10-year US Treasury notes was briefly bid above the 5% barrier on Thursday for the first time since July 2007, touching 5.001%, according to Reuters. While the benchmark yield eased back from that level, it posted its largest weekly surge since April 2022, thanks to solid economic data. Elsewhere, financial stresses are telling in different ways. Americans are falling behind on their auto loans at the highest rate in nearly 30 years. With interest rate hikes making newer loans more expensive, millions of car owners are struggling to afford their payments. And this is a clear sign of distress at a time when the economy is sending mixed signals, particularly about the health of consumer spending, according to Bloomberg. There is, of course, a most unusual convergence of interest rates between the developed countries and countries like India. In the US, for those with the best credit scores, interest rates are about 5% for a new car and about 7.1% for a used vehicle on average. And for those with the worst credit, rates are about 14% and 21% for new and used cars respectively, according to Bloomberg again. Now, India does not have such flexible interest rate offerings, particularly in the retail formal market, but this does give you a sense on how things are moving. In Indian markets, the BSE Sensex on Friday ended 232 points lower at 65,398. The Sensex has now fallen 1,031 points in the last three trading sessions. The NSE Nifty 50 was down 82 points at 19,543. Kotak gets a new CEO. Some seven weeks after Uday Kotak announced his resignation as CEO of Kotak Bank in an abrupt handwritten resignation, the bank has announced a new CEO. Ashok Vaswani, whose three-year appointment has been cleared by the Reserve Bank of India, comes in from outside 
and appears to be Uday Kotal's junior by two years from Sydney College in Mumbai and possibly knew each other earlier. Vasfani is a chartered accountant originally and has worked mostly outside India, including as CEO of Barclays Bank UK and earlier as CEO of Citigroup Asia Pacific. Right now, he is the president of Pagaya Technologies, a US-Israeli AI fintech. He is also a member on the board of the London Stock Exchange Group. Vasfani's appointment is interesting as it rules out an internal succession for now, though an internal succession may not have found it easy to pass the Reserve Bank's approval. The Reserve Bank's concerns, unstated openly at least, is that an internal successor would have been a proxy for founder Uday Kotak. In general, the Reserve Bank does not want banks to be run like companies and has set clear guidelines on how long CEOs can stay even if they are founders. The larger thinking, obviously, is that banks hold public deposits and have an accountability that goes beyond shareholders who might, of course, want continuity and might be happy with a CEO like Uday Kotak in the case of Kotak Mahindra. Uday Kotak's top managers in the main bank have mostly grown within the company, excepting in new businesses like mutual funds. And if the Reserve Bank had not put a spanner in the works, Kotak would have likely continued beyond the 15-year CEO limit now set by the regulator. His tenure would have ended on December 31st, will now remain on the board for five years. Shanti Ikambaram and Kiris Manian, both full-time directors and front-runners for the CEO's position, will continue to remain in their current roles, the bank said. Kodak has also announced its results, meanwhile, reporting a 21% rise in loans for the second quarter, which contributed to a 24% increase in standalone net profit to 3,191 crores. Net interest margins were up 23% to 6,297 crore rupees. Broadly, most Indian banks are consistently reporting double-digit loan growth over the past few months thanks to rising demand for credit amidst increased consumer spending. And more on that later. ICICI Bank, meanwhile, has reported a 36% growth in net profits to 10,261 crore rupees for the current year again, attributing it to lower provisions and higher income. The big kicker seems to be a strong growth in retail lending too, with retail loans that account now for more than 54% of ICICI Bank's total lending, which in turn have grown about 21% year-on-year. Retail loan growth is of course encouraging and worrying at the same time, the latter to the banking regulator. Overall, advances in the case of ICICI Bank rose 18% and business banking grew 30%. ICICI says deposits rose by 19% in the period under review, with term deposits rising about 32%. Asset quality improved, with the gross non-performing asset number inching down to 2.5% from 2.76%. More on banking, the Reserve Bank of India on Friday said that only around 10,000 crore worth of 2,000 rupee notes are still in circulation. Now, the 2,000 rupee note was, of course, the second demonetization exercise in seven years, though positioned differently the second time. The rationale in both cases, the first was 500 rupee notes and 1,000 rupee notes in November 2016, has never been too clear, at least to me. The hardship caused by demonetization, much less for the second round than the first, is quite evident and either way points to policy uncertainty. Hindustan Unilever's 19,000 crore rupee brands. FMCG major Hindustan Unilever on Thursday reported a 4% year-on-year rise in its standalone net profit for the second quarter ended September to 2,717 crore. Sequentially, net profits were up 10% and total revenue increased around 3.6% to 15,276 crores. So the question now is, what is the crystal ball, if one were to use that, telling us on overall consumer and consumption trends? 
And we'll spend some time on that today because clearly it's not very good. Hindustan Unilever's new CEO, Rohit Java, told investors that India's per capita FMCG or fast-moving consumer goods consumption when compared to other similar economies is significantly low. And within that, rural is highly under-indexed, even as he hinted at relook at cost. He also said that premiumization is bound to accelerate as Indians become more affluent and urban, according to the business standard. The more affluent population is expected to double by 2027. Naturally, their per capita of FMCG consumption is much higher at about 1.5 to 2 times the national average, Java said. In a reference to scale and size that HUL operates in, he pointed out that HUL is a wide portfolio of 50 plus brands, of which 19 brands are now worth more than 1,000 crores annually. HUL also said that it will structurally reset its cost base, which will help generate fuel to invest back in the growing business. Discretionary spending is increasing, but what if the spenders pull back? To pick up from where the HUL management left off, India is indeed seeing more discretionary spending as opposed to essential spending. Now, this has been steadily increasing in the last two decades, but is perhaps a little more stark now than ever before. It also means that industries are set up and flourish, like for example, entertainment or hospitality in a broad sense, to cater to this growing spend driven in turn by aspirations. But what happens if it reverses, even if slightly? What if those who spend and thus driving all this discretionary spending are finding their income slowing down or losing them altogether? Of course, there's nothing absolute or extreme in a way that businesses will start folding up tomorrow, but it is the growth rate that could be affected. So let's look at what's been happening in this transition from essential to discretionary. An interesting report from ICSA Securities out last week points out a few interesting things. ICSA Securities says that per capita, private consumption is now up eight times in the last 20 years, while on the other hand, population growth is beginning to moderate. More specifically, private finance consumption expenditure stood at 61% of GDP in nominal terms in 22-23. Or put differently, it's now reached 10,000 rupees per month per person, which is about eight times once again over the past two decades. And this is driven largely by the rising wallet share of discretionary consumption. The point about population being that the role of population growth in expanding consumption is fading over time, while per capita growth in discretionary consumption is likely to be the primary driver. Now, just to remind you once again that all of this is not happening suddenly, but very slowly, but again worth noting. So, as I said, the shifts are gradual over years, but the acceleration in some cases has been caused by new types of consumer behavior or external impulses. So let's get back to essentials, which are down to food, clothes, rent, utilities, which are now losing wallet share, while transportation, personal automobiles, personal care products, financial services, education, miscellaneous services, audiovisual recreation are among the areas that are gaining wallet share. The ICICI security says that wallet share of FNB, foods and beverage, is declining structurally. This used to be a dominant consumer category at the turn of the century in 2000 and had a 49% share. However, in the last two decades, once again, the wallet share of discretionary products has gained or risen to 43%, while FNB, which used to be 49%, is now 32%. Interestingly, and some of you may know this, spending on protein foods is rising structurally, even within foods and beverages. Again, the share of the relatively high discretionary consumption involving high protein products such as dairy, meat, eggs and fish has been rising steadily. A lot of businesses obviously benefit from all of this, and it's quite easy to spot them and the stocks that reflect them as well. But on the other hand, what if the private consumption expenditure slows down as is being predicted 
thanks to corporate salaries, notably in industries like IT, slowing down or disappearing altogether in a fewer cases. Almost all major IT companies continue to report lower headcount, which would have been unthought of even a year ago. The IT industry is reporting a decrease in headcount with a cumulative decline of over 16,000 employees across just the four or five big companies. These big four or five companies themselves employ close to a million people, so the numbers are very small. But it's the shift in trend that is concerning. To understand more of this shift from essential to discretionary over time and what could happen if trends reverse, I'm joined by Vinod Karki, equity strategist with ICICS Securities. If you look at the trend, there are two things to it in consumption. One obviously is that you have a very robust population growth, then that acts as a lever for consumption overall. And the second is the per capita consumption. So what we are observing is that the 2% growth in population that we used to have about two decades ago has dropped to below 1%. So that no longer is a driver of consumption. What is happening is per capita consumption, as you rightly said, is up eight times last two decades. And within this per capita consumption, I look at it, it is largely driven by discretionary. Now, discretionary means X essentials, which is basically a food, beverage, and utilities and, you know, those kind of things, which are essentials. So that's actually really rising. And even within food, which is dropping, what you observe is the more discretionary, which is your protein, food items, their share is becoming the largest, is taking away the major wallet share. So this is what we mean. And a lot of new categories like entertainment, leisure, other services, financial services, all these are really, you know, are growing much faster than the nominal GDP. So their wallet share is really rising in the economy. Right. So many of these things obviously have been happening steadily for the last few years. Is there anything that's standing out even within this, let's say in the last few years? And when I say few, I literally mean two or three years. Yeah, I think so on services, if you look at how financialization is happening, the financial services lately taking away a lot of share and a lot of uh, leisure, tourism, travel. I mean, obviously, X, the COVID effect, but that picking up. And entertainment, form of audiovisual entertainment, gaming, and these kind of things, you know, the numbers that are being put out that, you know, it's really that consumption is picking up OTTs, things like that, and mobile phones, network data consumption. These are the new areas which are really picking up. And the stocks that you are identifying on the basis of this are stocks which you are therefore taking a more deeper long-term call as opposed to earlier? The new categories, for example, Zomato you know, is the new entity which we never had you know, in terms of food delivery and how people are consuming food. So that's one, or let's say a PVR, Inox these type of companies, travel companies, gaming companies, and Azara, you know, those kind of things. Then uh, obviously the traditional retail companies are also part of this, which are innovating, getting into new categories, expanding their business space, and the whole financial services space. That's the entire thing, basically. And within financial services, also a lot of these internet, which are using technology a lot in expanding financial services. They are taking away wallet share. So, you know, that's how it is. Right. It obviously is logical that as a country grows and its per capita income grows, more expenditure goes into the discretionary basket. And some might be specific to countries like India, some might not be. But you're also, I guess, arguing, or that's my question really, that this is secular, as in this is this is not going to go backwards, as in people are not, unless something else happens, people are going to continue to order on Zomato, as you said, or go to PBR, Inox, or the equivalent of that. Absolutely. If you look at countries like US where 
the economy is largely formal and corporate sector has the largest wage bill and the way people spend. The share of food and essential wins actually even go lower from where we are right now. And discretionary services and discretionary goods, they will continue to get bigger and bigger as we expand and become more and more formal economy. Right. Let me ask you on the demand side. So the Indian IT sector, because of the sheer number of people it employs who are well-paid, is going through a bump now or going over a bump. Now, most big IT companies have obviously curtailed their hiring. Salaries have slowed down, which all reflects what's happening elsewhere in the world, particularly the Western world. So how is this likely to impact some of the arguments that you're making, at least in the near term? Near term, that's a big challenge because, as you know, 40% of the corporate sector wage bill comes from IT services. And so if there is going to be slowed down over there in terms of hiring and wage growth, so that will slow down at least in those areas. I mean, obviously, in those areas, when I mean it will impact the overall thing in terms of growth, right? But what is happening is this whole investment cycle that we are seeing, the real estate cycle that we are seeing, is offsetting some of this slowdown because we're seeing very strong absorption of real estate, especially in the luxury side. And that becomes a big, uh, what I should say, a lot of money comes into the hands of workers who are employed in that segment. You know, like construction workers is a prime example. All the, all the people who are in the hospitality, hotel and others, you know. So outside, in terms of sheer numbers, the largest recruiter in the economy is agriculture activity, followed by construction activity. And followed by this hotel trade and other things, basically. IT is a very small in terms of number of people, but in terms of sheer quantum of salaries, the amount of salary that takes away the lion's share. So it could be a case that a lot of people might see, I mean, especially in the construction, the leisure, hospitality industry, seeing some income growth and IT, you might see slow down. So it will be offsetting to an extent, but it will be a drag for sure, yeah. Right, right. Uh, we know. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Indian ports are buzzing with activity. There's much happening in the Indian port sector. A slew of announcements, mostly in the form of MOUs to expand port capacity up and down the west coast of India, have poured forth in recent weeks. Many of them were around a recent government-hosted Global India Maritime Summit, but also in sync with a few other developments, including India's announcement of an India-Middle East Corridor or IMEC. The Adani Group has reminded us via full-page advertisements that Mundra in Kutch was a barren piece of land 25 years ago before it took it over and built it into a port. Fun fact, Adani's port CEO Karan Adani was most likely 11 years of age when the port was incorporated in 1998. Adani Group is India's largest private operator with 13 ports and terminals representing, according to it, 24% of India's port capacity. The Adani Port also announced its Visinjam Port project in Kerala the week before. This port will be the first transshipment port in India and is fully owned by the Kerala government but being built by Adani Visinjam Ports Limited. It is expected to be fully operational by December 24 and is apparently the first such project in Kerala in almost a century. Meanwhile, DP World of Dubai Port World, which currently operates five container terminals in India, two in Navasheva, that's near Mumbai, one in Mundra, Cochin and Chennai each, has signed an MOU to work on the Vadawan Port Project and also with the Cochin Port Authority. 
Apart from another MOU with the Deen Dayal Port Authority for a container terminal also in Gujarat at Kandla called the Tuna Tekra Container Terminal. Incidentally, most ports are owned by the government but operated by companies like BP World or Adani. Many port projects have overshot their commissioning estimates by decades like Vadavan. In India, DP World was earlier P&O Ports, which was taken over globally by DP World in 2006. More on P&O Ports and its India avatar shortly. The Valwan Port is an ambitious project as it's called a mega port. It's north of Mumbai and close to Mumbai and Gujarat, therefore, and well located from a trade point of view. Once ready, it'll be in the top 10 in the world in handling capacity, according to officials from the government-owned JNPT, which owns ports next to Mumbai. JNPT has also signed MOUs with other players like JM Baxi and International Seaport Dredging Private Limited of Belgium to develop other terminals at the Vadawan port. The larger question, of course, is in all this activity, where is it going and what's the potential with all these new projects and what are the trade opportunities that this opens up? So I reached out to Captain Jimmy Saad, former regional director of South Asia and the Middle East at P&O Ports, which was later acquired by DP World, and considered a pioneer in private port operations in India and the region. And I began by asking him how he was seeing the Vadwan announcement, a project in which he played some role in. We were awarded this project in 1997 under Advantage Maharashtra by the then Prime Minister Deva Gowda and the Chief Minister Manor Joshi. We had envisaged that this port will be the Rotterdam of India. We wanted to create a very large multi-purpose port, which would be handling containers, cars, coal, wheat, cement, oil, gas, iron ore, almost all the cargoes that are required to be handled in this port. And the first phase was going to be 500 million metric tons, followed by 250 million metric tons in phase two, and the last phase being another 250 million metric tons. So 1,000 million metric tons was the project that we were looking at. It was going to cost approximately $1 billion, and we were very keen to do it. Of course, unfortunately, we couldn't go ahead and develop it because of the environmentalists who blocked us. So I'm delighted that Modiji has taken the courage and ensured that this project is finally coming to fruition, which is 26 years later and now at a cost of approximately 8 billion US dollars. Right. So a lot has changed since this port was conceived and it was then conceived under Piondo Ports, which was subsequently bought by Dubai Ports or DP World. So what all has changed? Of course, we've seen much more port capacity added, including on the West Coast. And also, I'm assuming the product mix may have changed. So how are you seeing this? Well, because we didn't develop it, JNPT has developed many container terminals. And finally, even the government-managed container terminal has been privatized. I've been asking for this for the last 27 years, but finally they did it. Apart from that, there's the MERS terminal, there's the PSA terminals. And then, of course, there's Mundra. You must be seeing all the ads recently, 25 years of Mundra, barren as it was on the front page of the Economic Times. That is exactly how it was. It was barren when we bought it. There was absolutely nothing there. We would have to commute from Gandhinagar all the way to Mundra. And we put Mundra on the map. PNO Ports put Mundra on the map. And I have to give credit to Gautam Seth. After we put Pundra on the map, he has further gone on to develop with Malay Madhavia and others and developed a great port. And Mundra is a big port now and it can compete with any major port of India. And I think it's done well. So that capacity has come on. Valarpadam has come on down the transshipment terminal. And, you know, other ports have also come up for uh, capacity-wise, which is very required for India. 
as India grows. I don't think there's any dire strait emergency that we should not be developing ports. We should be developing more ports with emphasis on not the revenue that the government gets, but on emphasis on efficiency, equipment that is put in. But more importantly, the ship turnaround time should be good so that India benefits from its imports and exports. So there is usually a comparison made with ports like Singapore or even Dubai when it comes to parameters like turnaround time. So where do we stack up now? Kovin, right from 1996, I have said that Indian volume to and from should only be from Indian ports and never, and I repeat, never be transshipped. Why should an Indian importer and exporter bear a transshipment cost? Every shirt in that container or any goods that you transport, if you transship it over another port, you have to pay for the lift on, lift off. You have to pay for the delay in that port. And I have been consistently saying Indian volume should go to and from directly from India. And that should be the aim of every single port that is created in India. Does that mean that we lose in terms of turnaround time because we are transshipping? Of course. There may be a slight diversion. The box will stay in the yard for so many days till the mothership comes to take it up. The handling charge of lift on, lift off, of course there's a charge. No shipping line is going to do it for you free because it's transshipping over it. The Indian importer and exporter pays for it. And I've always said that when I created NSICT, my volume is going to go to and from directly from India and come to India. Right. So speaking of motherships, so the Vizinjam port in Kerala, the project is also moving, which is more of a transshipment port. So would that now help segregate traffic and speed up everything? Well, the Vizinjan port, I believe it's a very good concession agreement that Gautam said has got, but it's going to directly compete with Molar Padam, which is also a transshipment port. It's also going to compete with Colombo, SAGT, which was a piano terminal in the old days. It's going to compete with the Jaya terminal. It's going to compete with the China merchants terminal that the China merchants own. And now, surprisingly, it's going to also compete with Gautam Seth's terminal itself because he has signed a concession in Colombo to do a transshipment terminal. So Visinjin is going to directly compete with that. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's how it's going to be. But in my personal opinion, there is no need for Indian volume to be transshipped anywhere. And as you look at the coastline of India, the coastline narrows towards the bottom. And there is a lot of competition. Chennai is doing well. Chidambaram port is doing well. Tutikoran is doing well. There's just too much cargo capacity there. And there's a lot of competition there. So I can't see Vasindian competing. And Wadwan, the location is fabulous. Modiji's new system to compete with one belt and one road scheme is perfect. Wadwan's perfect. 20 meter draft. It'll go directly. Although the alignment in the maritime Thing was shown as Dubai. Personally, I think it should be directly into Fujairah so you don't enter the Persian Gulf. So if you don't enter the Persian Gulf, you don't have to pay the premium, the insurance premium, extra insurance premium, extra steaming time to and from. And from Fujairah, it directly connects onto the rail line, goes via Saudi Arabia and then goes out again. So if Modiji's dream is to be coming true, as far as that is concerned, then the location of Wadwan serving the Indian hinterland be it Maharashtra, be it Gujarat, be it Madhya Pradesh, be it Bihar, be it whatever, is fantastically positioned. The port is fantastically positioned. We saw this coming in 1997. Unfortunately, as I said, it's 26 years too late. But happening, my dream is coming true. 
and that delights me to no end. I would like to see this happen. Right. Captain Sarp, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Bye-bye. No go to crypto. The Reserve Bank of India Governor Shakti Ganta Das has said, thankfully I think, that the central bank's stance on banning crypto assets has remained unchanged which is an outright ban despite a global trend towards regulating them. On crypto, I have already spelled out our position very clearly time and again and we continue with the same view. The IMF FSB, International Monetary Fund Financial Stability Board Synthesis paper also points out the risks involved in crypto, Shakti Kanta Das told reporters at the sidelines of a conference over the weekend. Following the adoption of a roadmap on crypto assets in the synthesis paper by G20 finance ministers and central bank governors at a meeting in Marrakesh earlier this month, the domestic crypto industry had hoped for the government to work towards a consensus on regulating crypto assets. However, the Reserve Bank's firm stance could complicate matters, reports the Business Standard. The synthesis paper had argued against a blanket ban on activities linked to crypto assets, suggesting that such a move could be costly and technically challenging to enforce. In the past, the Reserve Bank has stressed the need for an outright ban on cryptocurrencies. Well, that's it from me then. Have a great week ahead and a happy Dasera for tomorrow. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.